How diddly do, everyone? You somehow stumbled onto episode 23 of this, the Nasty Pasty podcast. So on this show, we showcase a wholesome baked pasty, if you will, but it's filled with nasty content. Films that were the compatriots of those banned by the UK government in the 80s that escaped the controversy almost untainted by the demonising of VHS. Some of them are similar in theme, genre, actors or crew, so what I attempt to do is to form some sort of connection between them to showcase how silly the choices of the DPP were when there were comparatively equal or harder materials around. Oh me? Oh you guys know me, it's Andrew Roberts. Clearly got nothing better to do than chew the scenery, watch awful films and chat about them. So last week we were encroached upon by creepy crawlies, so this week we're under attack from something a whole lot less organic. It's machine themed week, so we've got two mechanical mashups to sink your antennae into. Both of them were released in 1986, the year where we were introduced to Oprah Winfrey, Studio Ghibli, uh, Spain and Portugal joined the EU, and also we had the horrendous Chernobyl disaster in April. So the films this week are Sergio Martino's Hands of Steel and Tim Kincaid's Robot Holocaust. While it's not necessarily a genre, machines and androids within science fiction films did burst into popularity into the 80s because of several factors. There was Ridley Scott's 1982 cult film Blade Runner, and it's a huge influence on this subgenre, because it showcased for the first time dystopian futuristic cities, uh, humanoid robots, which in that film are called replicants, and a neo-noir approach to cinematography and tone. And soon after, in 1984, James Cameron released The Terminator, to critical acclaim and success. Now, his film blended the dark elements of murderous machines and artificial intelligence being a threat to society on a global scale, and combined this with exciting action sequences and 80s-style thrills. The combination of the two led to a whole host of similar machine-related action flicks, with a backdrop of post-apocalypse and imitations, like the two films that we're covering today. Other similar titles include 2019 After the Fall of New York, uh, Raiders of Atlantis, or Endgame, Bronx's Final Fight. So anyway, let's head straight into proceedings with our first film of the day, Hands of Steel.
At a dilapidated area of America, where the citizens suffer terminal diseases are rampant, a blind priest and politician called Arthur rejects claims by his team that his life is in danger. A tough-looking man by the name of Paco soon enters the hotel in which Arthur is residing, apparently a resident, storming into their room and attempts to kill Arthur before escaping into a sewer. In a lab somewhere, two men called Cooper and Hunt discuss with their boss, Francis Turner, the failure of Paco, who is revealed to be some sort of cybernetic assassin. Paco travels across country to evade the authorities, trading in and destroying several cars to cover his tracks, and eventually happening upon a bar in Arizona, where he meets Linda, the barmaid. She agrees to let him stay in exchange for helping out. Cooper and Hunt interrogate a Professor Ulster for clues as to why Paco failed, and end up killing him, only for Hunt to suddenly turn on Cooper and murder him too. Back at Turner's, Hunt is told to find a Peter Howell, who's a European hitman, in order to help him find Paco. A trucker called Raoul and a bunch of buddies arrive at a bar and have an arm wrestling competition. He and Paco become aggressive with each other and have an arm wrestle themselves, with Paco obviously winning. A bar fight ensues, with Paco knocking out all of the truckers. Linda begins to fall for him, especially after he chops an entire scrapyard of junk into wooden planks. After Paco is challenged by Blanco, who's the reigning arm wrestling champion, Raoul tries to sabotage him by tying him up in the desert to create a no-show. He arrives either way and defeats Blanco fair and square, before revealing to Linda that he is in fact a cyborg, reconstructed after an accident several years ago. He says that he only regained his consciousness after he met Arthur, and just before he dealt the killing blow, which is why the blow wasn't actually fatal. At a strip club, Hunt and Howell encounter the truckers who are regaling the tale of Paco beating Blanco. The pair of assassins meet Raoul, who leads them to Linda's bar, and send in a couple masquerading as a John and the Hooker, whereas they actually grab Linda and lure Paco into a room so that they can kill him. The guy is killed in the struggle, but the woman actually turns out to be a cyborg herself. After a struggle, Paco twists her head off, just as he and Linda are accosted by Hunt and Howell, who pursue them with guns. The pair lose the assassins, resulting in Hunt's death, but they're then chased by Turner's helicopter, as well as Raoul, who tries to ram into them on a bridge, and he forces them eventually into a rock. Paco, finally having enough, bursts through his windscreen and crushes his head, killing him. Escaping again, Turner himself turns up and kills Howell in order to pursue Paco personally. Blanco turns up and takes Linda to a hospital, whilst Paco squares up to one final confrontation with Turner. Turner, however, spitefully destroys Blanco's truck, with Linda just barely escaping with her life. Fleeing to a factory, Paco is pursued by Turner's assassins, whom he dispatches easily. And then Turner confronts Paco himself with a laser gun, but suddenly gets disarmed. Declaring that you cannot control a man through his brain, but instead his heart, Paco tears Turner's heart right out. Faced with giving himself up to the police, he's then shocked to discover that Linda is in fact alive. Wanting to convince him that it's not his fault, Paco reveals a wound on his head that shows that his brain is in fact mechanical, leaving him doubtful that his identity or memories of Paco were even real at all. You ever arm wrestle? No. It's a big deal around here. Those are the champs of the past ten years. He's the tri-state champion now. I didn't hear your car pull in. Broke down. I walked. Bad luck. Where were you headed? Someplace quiet. 
quiet here, for sure. You eaten? No. And you're dead broke, right? Right. I need a place to stay for a couple of days. Sure. And in exchange, you help me out around here until you cut my throat and take off with the few bucks I got in the till. I could have done that already. Okay. I'll take that chance. My name is Linda. What's yours? Paco. Directed by Sergio Martino in 1986, Hands of Steel is a science fiction cheese fest about a fugitive on the run from a nefarious company who turns out to be a cyborg created by the company as an assassin and who's now self-aware and on the run. Right from the get-go, Hands of Steel is a rather stereotypical 80s sci-fi flick. We've got a run-down downtown area with downtrodden residents, a sombre but jivey synthesised track playing, and banners that declare you have no future. In fact, the first ten minutes of the film feel like rather a condensed version of the Terminator film, with a hopeful priest-slash-politician purported to be the saviour of the city, only for a deadpan cyborg to appear and attempt to kill him. Martino himself admits that the Terminator was his main inspiration for the picture, but in fact the film does rather predate the Universal Soldier films, which came much later in the 90s and bear much more of a resemblance to. From that point onwards, though, the film does become a little bit of a fugitive-type film, with our main cyborg guy, Paco, on the run, and then hiding out at a bar where he mostly spends the movie doing menial tasks, arm wrestling, or wooing the barmaid with his oozing machismo. On that note, the film is dripping with typical Italian macho-ness. Daniel Green quite often appears shirtless with the fake sweat dripping all over him, whilst Raoul constantly boasts about how no one can beat him at arm wrestling. Arm wrestling itself is considered to be a point of proving your masculinity, not helped by the fact that Linda seems to be wooed almost automatically by Paco's masculine acts. The music is super cheesy too, heavily synthesised, and it really adds to the silliness of the proceedings, which are already at a fever pitch due to some of the lines, performances and the set pieces. In a trashy aesthetic sort of way, I actually kind of like the set design, which tends to be just massively mismatched furniture, a lot of junk and a lot of pipes sticking out of walls indiscriminately. Even uh, Professor Ulster's laboratory seems to consist of multiple clothes dryer tubes, making it all the more amusing when he squeals, No, please, don't do that, no! in response to his lab being trashed. Other golden lines are Linda warning a hooker, One thing, honey, don't wipe lipstick on the towels, huh? Or the female cyborg declaring, I am the perfect cyborg, and I've been sent here to destroy a traitor! Even some of the effects are quite hilarious. When Cooper and Hunt access Paco's file at the so-called Central Data Centre, the image on the screen is quite clearly superimposed at the wrong angle. Dr Peckinpah and the police officer seem puzzled by the blip-blop bleeping of their computer whilst trying to work out how Mosley was injured. To us, we see a rotating blob that becomes the shape of a painfully obvious fist, whilst the characters are still perplexed at what the computer is actually trying to say. Even Turner's laser cannon doesn't make a lasery sound. I was full-on expecting a 50s or 60s style boop when the gun was fired. And the ending is rather a throwaway twist. Paco appears to be cybernetic, even in his brain, giving rise to the idea that his memories of actually being alive were false. But the film pretty much ends instantly, then kind of wasting the opportunity without much of an explanation. Not that we really need one, no, the, the film has pretty much done its job of giving us some bone crunching and some 80s cheese.
And apart from predating the Universal Soldier films, which had a very similar plot, Martino's vision of the future also seemed to predict the chip and pin card system, by which you have your cards scanned in order to make transactions. Paco is also pitted against a female cyborg, who's curiously but hilariously wearing what looks like a paper nappy covered in cellophane. This idea, of course, would reappear in the canon Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, in which Arnie is in conflict with the female Terminator. Despite the film being low budget, the production almost went smoothly without a hitch, but alas, possibly one of the worst things that can happen during a film actually happened. Actor Claudio Casanelli, who played the slimy hitman Howell, tragically perished in a helicopter crash on July 12, 1985, during the filming of the production in Arizona. According to the investigations after the accident, it was determined that the rotor blades of the helicopter had struck the underside of a steel bridge and then snapped off, causing the aircraft to plunge into the canyon, instantly killing both Casanelli and the pilot. It was later attributed to the pilot's bad judgement, especially as he was seemingly taking fentamine at the time, which was an appetite suppressant with some side effects that may have caused lapses in his attention. Actor John Saxon was also meant to be in the same helicopter during scenes in America, but he was abiding by the Screen Actors Guild guidelines, which prevented actors from participating in an American shoot by foreign directors if the union was not involved. His scenes were instead shot in Italy with an Italian-registered aircraft, and Saxon since has not breached any Screen Actors Guild rules due to him owing his life to abiding by them in this instance. Main macho guy Paco is played by Daniel Green, who was a Miami-born American actor who'd started his career in American TV before making a debut in 1985's Deadly Intruder. After Hands of Steel, he went on to have some small roles in things like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, Soldier of Fortune, uh, Kingpin, Me, Myself and Irene, Shallow Hal, and also Dumb and Dumber 2. According to Martino, Green was chosen because he looked like a clone of Sylvester Stallone, in order to add to the American action movie feeling that he wanted. Linda, the rather easily wooed barmaid, was played by Swedish bombshell Janet Agron. Now, she'd started her career as a model before travelling to Italy, where she was plucked for her eye-catching looks. She'd appeared in the Section 3 cannibal gut muncher, Eaten Alive, from the late Umberto Lenzi. Uh, she'd also appeared in Fulci's City of the Living Dead, uh, the zombie knockoff, Panic, and also the crazy Ratman. The unfortunate Claudio Casanelli was an Italian actor who'd been in Flavia the Heretic, What Have They Done to Your Daughters, and also Fulci's giallo film Murder Rock. But he was mainly a Sergio Martino stalwart, who'd appeared in Suspicious Death of a Minor, Mountain of the Cannibal God, Island of the Mutations, which is sometimes known as Screamers, or Island of the Fishmen, uh, The Great Alligator, The Scorpion with Two Tails, and of course this, which was, it turned out to be his final film. Other cult actor, George Eastman, appears here as the unruly Raoul. His real name, of course, was Luigi Montefiore, and he started his career appearing in spaghetti westerns, in villainous roles due to his dark and imposing looks. He then went on to star in Mario Bava's Ravid Dogs, uh, before meeting Joe D'Amato and starring in a load of his productions, such as Emmanuel's Revenge, Anthropophagus, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, Hard Sensation, Porno Holocaust, and also Absurd. But he also made appearances in Bronx Warriors, Iron Master, 2019 After the Fall of New York, Endgame, Blast Fighter, and then after Hands of Steel, he was in Michelle Soavi's uh, Stage Fright and Lamberto Barber's Delirium. 
Interestingly, Hands of Steel is apparently one of the few times where Eastman dubbed his own voice. Roberto Bissacco, who played Cooper, he popped up in Martino's Giallo, Torso, whilst Bruno Bellotta, who played Arthur's assistant, had small roles in both Once Upon a Time in America and also Demons 2. Donald O'Brien, who plays the gibbering Professor Alster, we've mentioned before on our episode on Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. He'd been in stuff like Zombie Holocaust and also the original Inglorious Bastards. Veteran actor John Saxon is almost instantly recognisable from his roles in Nightmare on Elm Street and also Enter the Dragon. And we've also mentioned him before on our episodes on The Girl Who Knew Too Much and also Black Christmas, which was our very first one. He'd additionally been in two video nasties himself, Cannibal Apocalypse and Tenebrae. Actor Franco Fantasia, who played Arthur Mosley, he'd appeared in a few genre films over the years himself, such as Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Mountain of the Cannibal God, Zombie Flesh Eaters, and also Eaten Alive. Interestingly, actor Sergio Testori, despite being in several Italian films, seems to be the most uncredited person I've ever seen, it being uncredited on almost every production that he's been on. He was in My Dear Killer, Syndicate Sadists, The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, Nightmare City, 2019 After the Fall of New York, and also Raiders of Atlantis. Director Sergio Martino was a rather illustrious character who's delved into multiple genres throughout his entire career, including giallo, uh, cannibal films, adventure films, and science fiction. Some of his work includes The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, The Case of the Scorpion's Tale, All the Colours of the Dark, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, Torso, Suspicious Death of a Minor, Mountain of the Cannibal God, Isle of Mutations, The Great Alligator, and also The Scorpion with Two Tails. The film was written by a bunch of people, including Martino himself, but one of the others was Dardano Shachetti, in an uncredited capacity. Now, Sacchetti was a hugely prolific writer in Italian genre films, with credits like Cat of Nine Tales, uh, Bay of Blood... Zombie Flesh Eaters, uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, The Last Hunter, City of the Living Dead, House by the Cemetery, The Beyond, The New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, and A Blade in the Dark, etc., etc. And he was joined on this film by his wife, writer Elisa Briganti. Now, she worked on most of her husband's projects, as well as Ratman, Exterminators of the Year 3000, and Lamberto Barva's Brevido Giallo series on TV. It was also written on by Louis E. Chianelli, who was an Italian uh, voice director who'd worked on various projects like Deep Red, Strip Nude for Your Killer, uh, Street Killers, also known as Beast with a Gun or Mad Dog Killer, uh, Cannibal Ferox, and also Escape from the Bronx, or Bronx Warriors 2, whichever one you want to call it. Ernesto Gastaldi also contributed, and his portfolio included The Long Hair of Death, Almost Human, and also Once Upon a Time in America as well as most of Martino's filmography in general. The film was produced by Luciano Martino, who was Sergio's brother, and he worked on most of his brother's films, as well as Mondo Sex, Naked and Violent, The Violent Professionals, Almost Human, Iron Master, Eaten Alive, Cannibal Ferox, A Blade in the Dark, Blast Fighter, etc. He'd also made a cameo appearance in Umberto Lenzi's cannibal movie, Deep River Savages, which is more often known as Man from Deep River and he was famously married to French giallo mistress Edwige Fenwick in the 1970s. Now, he unfortunately passed away at the age of 79 in Kenya from complications. He had uh, pulmonary edema, I believe. 
The music was done by Claudio Simonetti, who was the leading man of Dario Argento favourite Goblin during the 70s and the 80s. Avid fans will know Goblin, that they'd composed stuff for Deep Red, Suspiria, Dawn of the Dead, Tenebrae, Cut and Run, Demons, Body Count Opera, House of Witchcraft, Mother of Tears, etc. etc. Simonetti also went to score some music for Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead, as well as the PS2 game The Warriors, which was based on the cult film. Cinematographer Giancarlo Ferrando was also a frequent collaborator of Martino's, working on most of his projects, as well as Iron Master, Devilfish, House of the Witchcraft, and House of the Lost Souls, as well as the very infamous Troll 2. We've mentioned editor Eugenio Alabiso before on our Against Nature episode. He, of course, worked on various Italian productions like Spasmo, uh, Hotel Paradise, Body Count, The Fifth Chord, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, Case of the Bloody Iris, and much more. The special effects in this film, including a decapitated cyborg head, and some circuitry underneath Paco's skin, and some fairly brutal head crushings, were done by quite a few members. One of these was Nick Plantico, who actually went on to do the special effects on James Cameron's Titanic, but then he seemed to go on to some rather low-budget films compared, like Flight of the Living Dead, Humans vs. Zombies, and Attack of the Killer Donuts. There was also Paolo Ricci, who we've mentioned on the Cannibal episode. He'd worked on Last Cannibal World, Mountain of the Cannibal God, uh, Against Nature, or The Green Inferno, whatever you want to call it, and also Lamberto Barva's Dinner with a Vampire. Fellow special effects guy Sturgio Stivaletti also joined on the latter film, as well as The Wax Mask, uh, The Card Player, Phenomena, Demons, Cemetery Man, Demons 2, Opera, and also Michelle Soavi's The Church. The last crew member was Elio Terrabilli, who's worked on special effects, camera operation, and a technician on various projects like Demonia, Stage Fright, Killing Birds, Ghost House, Against Nature, The Sweet House of Horrors, and The House of Clocks. The film was released in 1986 in Italian theatres under the title Vendetta dal Futuro, which means Vengeance of the Future. It's also played under several other titles across the world, such as Atomic Cyborg, Arms of Steel, Hands of Stone, Return of the Terminator, Return to the Terminator, and just plain old Destroyer. It seemed to have a cinema release in the US under its Hands of Steel title, but the same could not be said of the UK, who only got a VHS version from Vestron Video in late 1986. Now, obviously, this skipped the period of the video nasties, and although it was released under the title Fist of Steel, the movie was actually a shining example of how crazy censorship was in the wake of the nasties. Now, there's nothing particularly graphic about Hands of Steel, but nonetheless, it received a one-second cut. The troublemaker? Paco ear-clapping someone. Sometimes known as a thunderclap strike, it's one of those martial arts moves that's used to escape when you're grappled, as it causes the victim a great deal of pain on the sides of their heads. Now, the BBFC were particularly vigilant in the wake of the nasty scandal. One of the side effects of this was believing that certain things shown on film would be imitated by viewers, so the ear-clapping had to go. At its most extreme, James Furman, who was the infamous censor who was the director of the company, decided that ninja stars, butterfly knives, hunting knives, even nunchucks were just unacceptable images, and therefore he ruthlessly cut any images of it shown in film. Thankfully, the madness did end once he retired and the BBFC began to relax. Hands of Steel is now uncut in the UK from 2016 onwards, 
downgraded to a 15 certificate on DVD and Blu-ray from 88 films. That was our first film, Hands of Steel, so let's proceed on to the next one, which is Robot Holocaust. Society was decimated many years ago when robots rebelled on their creators, leading to a radiation spill that devastated the land for years, leaving only one city behind called New Terra, where any form of civilization remains. The people that do remain believe that an entity called the Dark One, in a large so-called power station, controls the atmosphere around New Terra, allowing them to live, but there are rumours of scavengers who live outside New Terra who have adapted to the toxic atmosphere. During a fight in New Terra's underground, of which the victor gets to travel to the power station for a reward, a young woman called Deja speaks out against the brutality of the ritual, and is met with the atmosphere processor being turned off by the Dark One, who sees what's going on through his assistant Valeria. Deja's father, Jorn, Deja herself, and a young nomad named Neo are actually able to breathe anyway, but Deja feigns unconsciousness. Jorn is taken away by a robot called Tork for his immunity to the poison, whilst Neo questions why she was able to survive. Deja reveals that she and her father are wearing devices invented by her father that repels the toxic atmosphere. Neo explains that he's a wastelander from outside the city who wishes to destroy the Dark One. He, Clayton the Freebot, Deja, Haim and Bray, who are two of Deja's tribe, embark on a course to find the power station, going through the remains of a park. Encountering an androgenistic um, tribe of warrior women, Haim bests the leader Nyla in combat and convinces her to lead the group to the station with the women's latest male prisoner, called Kai. Jorn arrives at the power station and is questioned by Valeria, only to be taken to a crystal when he refuses to cooperate, where he sees that Valeria is keeping track of the small group of rebels. The rebels go underground, with Nyla explaining that the area is rife with sewage worms, who hunt by sound, and also irradiated humans. The group slash their way through the worms who attempt to bite them, and they reach an oasis to rest. Valeria, irritated at Jorn's silence, sends Tork the robot out to kill the rebels. The group, with Haim severely injured, are attacked by mutants on the surface, who kill Haim. They manage to fight them off and reach the outside of the power station, where they find the crucified bodies of the winners of the fighting in New Terra. One of them is Neo's father. Descending into a nearby subway station, dubbed the Vault of Beasts, Clayton explains that the area is rigged with traps to prevent anyone from reaching the power station. They encounter the Beast, an arachnid creature who entraps Deja before getting fried by Clayton's circuitry. 
The party then rest before waking up to see that Bray is missing, who's gone on ahead and is then suddenly killed by a biomechanical creature. Clayton opens the way ahead, but soon malfunctions, forcing Deja to repair him. They then proceed, fighting the Dark One's guards off and deactivating tripwires, while Valeria, frustrated with her constant failures, personally attacks Deja and drags her away, intending to give her to the Dark One, who has actually finally run out of patience himself and scorches her face off, revealing her to be a machine. In anger, Valeria activates a self-destruct sequence to destroy the entire station, Kai is killed by the guards who slash his chest open, whilst Nyla sacrifices herself to save Neo from imminent death, stopping the self-destruct sequence at the same time. The Dark One reveals himself to Deja as a huge organic tangle of goo, which surrounds Jorn's body in an egg-like structure. Valeria deactivates the air processor in order to kill the humans left in the city of New Terra, whilst Clayton accidentally shoots her dead while he's trying to make his pistol work. Neo manages to kill Tork and reunites with Deja and Jorn, who begs the pair to kill him and destroy the Dark One for good. Neo does so, incinerating both Jorn and the Dark One, whilst Clayton reactivates the air, saving New Terra from extinction. Neo returns to his tribe in the Wastelands, with Clayton in tow, to bring him into the city in order to rebuild the world. You must be quiet from here on in. Sewage worms. What? Sewage worms. Man-eating creatures we must try to avoid. They are blind, but they seek their prey by listening for them. Humans! They eat humans! This is their nest. If we can get to the other side, we'll be safe. Safe? We'll never make it through. What kind of a woman are you? Have you no fighting spirit? Enough! Let's see how many there are. How can we make it through? If only we had some kind of bait to distract them while the rest of us slipped through. Whoever it is will surely get attacked by the worms. No one would be foolish enough to volunteer. There's only one way. What? We chop our way through. Yes. Ready? Oh boy, where on earth do I start with this one? Back in the days of the Nasty Scare, a film called Robot Holocaust would have certainly drawn attention and probably would have been seized simply for the name. Cannibal Holocaust's infamy was so prominent that almost any title with either cannibal or holocaust in it would have been seized almost automatically, regardless of the content inside, which is actually what happened with Cannibal Man, Cannibal Terror, and Zombie Holocaust, which when you watch them, they actually weren't that awful. Robot Holocaust is a shining example of just how deceiving an initial impression can be when you look at the packaging. With a title like that, and a cover image that shows a small band of heroes with gargantuan robots and a sinister face in the background, you imagine that you're in for a rather riled ride. You'd be right, but not quite in the way that you expect, as Robot Holocaust is far from a shining example of a good film. But let's go back a little anyway. 
Tim Kincaid's Robot Holocaust is an American-made exploitation picture released in 1986, which depicts the acts of a group of rebels in a post-apocalyptic city and wasteland who aim to scupper the control of a being known as the Dark One, who holds the last remaining people under his enslavement, threatening to expose them to a toxic atmosphere if they refuse to comply. It's nothing massively unique in terms of science fiction fantasy, but it does rather resemble a film version of a video game RPG, with the ensemble of characters that you would expect to have. There's a brave hero who wields a sword and is immune to the toxic atmosphere, he's got a robot sidekick, there's a damsel princess type character, a fierce anti-male warrior woman, and also two twin grunts who are wearing Roman style armour. Admittedly, I didn't mind the beginning of the film. I mean, it starts off with some half-naked men having a wrestling match. What's not to like? But it soon becomes apparent that the acting in this film was going to be a chore. At times, it was beyond wooden, almost as though the wood's calcified. Even the dialogue is incredibly cheesy, and it wouldn't be out of place in a video game, such as, Who is this woman that passes through the she-zone with male scum? Or, Take him to the room of questions! The character of Clayton, clearly a riff on the somehow much less irritating in comparison C-3PO of Star Wars, also tends to spout a perturbed rendition of Go away! whenever he's attacked, undermining any sort of serious appreciation of the film's combat scenes. This is most evident, though, in the character of Valeria, who speaks with such a thick French enunciation that it does remind one of René Harmon from Frozen Scream. The costumes of the characters, while varied are incredibly silly-looking. Neo, Heyman, Bray basically all look the same, in Roman-inspired armour complete with battle skirt, greaves and swords, although it's all rendered in black and brown. Deja wears what appears to be a wisp of beige chiffon with some costume jewellery, whilst Nyla looks like Wilma Flintstone with some added belts and attitude. The unforgettable Valeria, whilst supposed to be the threatening sidekick of the Dark One, is reduced actually to a bit of a laughing stock due to her two costumes. The first of which appears to be a damaged Tinkerbell outfit with a variety of feather boas and dusters. Her other outfit is equally laughable, looking like a cloak dress made entirely out of black string, or black plastic six-pack rings. Kai, the mute muscle man, simply wears a skimpy pair of underwear. Even the robot characters themselves are rather silly. Clayton looks like a cross between a rubbery Giver man and C-3PO on meth, whilst Tork is basically a red-coloured predator with elements of shellfish. The whole production is clearly cheap. Even the music was reused in another Charles Band film, uh, Laser Blast. Not only do the costumes provide a laugh, but so do the film's set pieces, as much as they are. The whole area of New Terra is meant to be a toxic wasteland devastated by robots and a toxic spill. Yet there's lush green foliage abound, whilst in the background one can actually see the Empire State Building, fully intact. I wouldn't normally be so arsed about details like that, but even Enzo Castellari and Bruno Matai managed to achieve a relatively good post-apocalyptic look on Bronx Warriors and Rats Night of Terror. The underground tunnel with the sewage worms actually moves like latex, and the entrance to the subway is clearly a wooden construction. I'm not aware of any New York subways that have such basic wooden entrances, especially when they're labelled emergency exit. Even the Dark One's ominous power station is just a painfully obvious map painting. But it's the massively contradictory elements of Robot Holocaust that make it such a hoot. Or an annoyance if your trash tolerance levels are quite low. 
Valeria refers to the film's first setting as an amphitheatre, even though it's quite clearly just a back alley of some sort. Nyla's tribe of warrior women despise men to the extent that they declare them useless and unneeded, only to then go back on this and say that they kidnap a male occasionally to, well, effectively rape him in order to get pregnant, and then they kill him. Nyla herself is the figurehead of the group, hating everything male in her path, until she joins the party, and then she becomes considerably more tolerable, with only the occasional glib remark. Even more bonkers is the fact that she doesn't seem to undergo any sort of journey into accepting men as trustworthy allies, yet ends up uncharacteristically sacrificing herself in order to save Neo. She also explains at one point that there's an oasis up ahead, and when it appears, I literally said, it's a fucking pond, as that's exactly what it was. Deja later backs up into a camera, before she's inverted commas stuck in the web, open bracket, ha ha, close bracket, and the resultant beast that is aggrandized to the extreme turns out to be just a single spidery leg, which is seemingly defeated with just a simple short circuit from Clayton. Valeria constantly asks John the question about how he's able to breathe the toxic atmosphere, even though the rebels have made little progress since the last time that she asked. Even John himself looks bored with her incessant nuisance, but since he doesn't really change his facial expression throughout the whole movie, it is hard to tell whether he's just in fact given up on the acting altogether. Valeria herself fails in her task so many times, it's actually hard to believe that the mighty Dark One would give her so many chances. And she's not even sure what her objective is. First she says that Deja should be killed first, and then she promises to keep her alive in order to give her to the Dark One. It's illustrated no more idiotically, though, than when the Dark One has finally had enough of her and exposes her cyborg face. Valeria, then, in a rage, sets the self-destruct sequence off in order to destroy the power station. But then, Nyla inadvertently stops it, and that which prompts Valeria, in a very Tommy Wiseau-esque sort of way, declares, Dark One, forgive me. I'm here to serve you. Please believe me. I facepalmed really hard. Even the mute Kai has his fair share of laughs. He's tasked with deactivating tripwires attached to a bomb, but the scene is so clumsily done that we actually see him touch a wire quite clearly, and the bomb doesn't go off. And he also dies from the most superficial chest wound ever inflicted. But at least he's a bit of eye candy. I mean, if you're not that way inclined, he's simply just fodder. But the fact that he's mute means at least that he can't act his lines very badly. Having said that, it's not all bad news but it is mostly bad news. Some of the combat sequences, while they're badly choreographed, they do end up with a nice decapitation or two occasionally. Without the gore, though, these scenes are a little painful to watch, especially with oddities like Neo trying to strangle Tork, who's a robot. Surely that won't work? The robotic thing that kills Bray looked rather interesting, actually, being half mechanical and half organic, but it has precious little screen time in order to appreciate it properly. The sewage worms aren't a bad idea. They conjure up images of the deadly spawn, for example, but they do come across as a little hammy because of the completely non-threatening acting from their co-stars. In our only dose of nudity in the whole film, Valeria utilises a pleasure chamber in order to enjoy herself, only to be told by the Dark One that it's not for indulging in, and he then allows her to use it only a scene later after doing absolutely bog all other than just speak. The chamber itself, by the way, looks like so much trouble and effort for so little payoff. Wouldn't you just not have a wank? And speaking of having a wank, it's time to talk about director Tim Kincaid. 
Robot Holocaust was only one of several science fiction or exploitation films that he did, and they all seem to have the reputation of being generally awful. Some of his other films include Bad Girls Dormitory, uh, Breeders, and also Mutant Hunt. But he soon left conventional filmmaking, however, and went on to have major success in another business altogether. When looking at the IMDb for this guy, I was confused when I actually recognised most of the titles that he directed. And then it hit me. It turns out that Tim Kincaid's alias is Joe Gage, who's a prominent director of gay pornography. Yes, I've watched most, if not all, of his films. And what can I say, they're actually better in terms of production and acting than Robot Holocaust is at any rate. He's continued to have a role in porn production ever since, and it looks unlikely that he'll return to exploitation films anytime soon. What's even more confusing for me, though, is that he was apparently married to Robot Holocaust's producer, a woman called Cynthia DePaula, who'd worked on all of his non-pornographic films. Either he came out of the closet after making those films, which would account for the abundant topless men in Robot Holocaust, or is actually heterosexual and just has a very bizarre fascination with man-on-man action. The other producer was Charles Band, who of course needs no introduction, as we covered him on our special episode with Mr Callum Waddle. He of course did the Puppet Master films, as well as Massacre Mansion and Parasite, which were two Section 3 nasty films. Cinematographer Arthur D. Marks, he also worked on Kincaid's non-porn films, whilst editor Barry Zetlin graduated onto quite a few recognisable horror films, such as Galaxy of Terror from Roger Corman, uh, Breeders, Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Bolarama, Assault of the Killer Bimbos, Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, Ghoulies 2, and also Children of the Corn Part 2. The most successful crew members, though, were the various special effects guys, such as Tom Lawton, who'd worked on The Toxic Avenger before working on Kincaid's movie. Afterwards, he then went on to Critters 2, A Class of Newcomb High, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, King Kong, and even The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Another guy was Matt Vogel, who'd already worked on a wealth of exploitation fare from the US, like Don't Go In The House, which was one of the nasties, uh, Miss 45 from Abel Ferrara, The Nesting, which was a Section 3 nasty, Madman, and also Jack Shoulders Alone In The Dark. After Kincaid's film, he returned for his future films Bad Girls Dormitory and Breeders, before moving on to other projects like Street Trash, Frankenhooker, King of New York, the 1990 version of Night of the Living Dead by Tom Savini, and even the 90s female-empowering First Wives Club, which is actually one of my favourites. Ralph Cordero also worked on The Toxic Avenger, as well as Splatter University, Flesh-Eating Mothers, Sewage Baby, George of the Jungle, and Coraline. John Bisson worked on Kincaid's Breeders, and then went on to the comedy horror of Vampire in Brooklyn, uh, the very fantastic Army of Darkness, uh, Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, and also Lord of Illusions, based on a book of Clive Barker's. The last one, Ed French, continued with Kincaid on Bad Girl's Dormitory, before going on to have quite a large well-known portfolio, including the video nasty Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, Amityville 2 The Possession, The Exterminator Part 2, The Stuff, Blood Rage, Vampire's Kiss, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, White Chicks, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, which is another favourite of mine, uh, Paul Blart, Mall Cop, uh, Dragon Ball Evolution, Terminator Salvation, American Sniper, Sinister 2, and most recently the TV series Westworld. 
Now, the actors, if you can call them that, fared much worse, with most of them not appearing in anything outside of Kincaid's small draw of non-pornographic films. There were a few exceptions. Rick Giannassi, who played Talk, he cropped up again in Star Trek Voyager, whilst Nicholas Rena, who played Haim, did a voice role on the 1997 video game adaptation of The Men in Black. The chap who played the annoying robot, Clayton, his name was J. Buzz Vaughan Ornsteiner, who was more commonly known as Dr. Buzz, who had his own phone-in radio show in New York City. He was a fully qualified psychologist who'd previously appeared on a TV show called Copycat Killers, before actually getting his own radio show. That's pretty much it for the actors. I imagine most of their careers were knocked stone-cold dead after this movie. Now, the film was a direct-to-video VHS release in the US where it was made, so it couldn't actually get a theatrical lease even then in the 80s. This was not true of Italy, however, where it received a full theatrical release, but there's actually some considerable differences in prints, which we'll get to in a moment. The UK, however, received no release at all, in any form, and it still has not to this day. So, it is just right for plucking by many of the UK distribution companies if people want it. I do think you need to be a special kind of someone to truly covet a picture like this, but having said that, it is quite utterly demented and it's very hilarious nonetheless. It's nothing that beer and company wouldn't solve anyway. As much as the film may certainly have been seized due to the titling, nothing quite illustrates the foolhardiness of such a policy when the contents like this are quite awful. The VHS version, though, from NTSC regions was available to avid collectors who imported stuff, so it is possible that some madmen in Britain did watch this back in the day. Since there's no UK censorship or releases to speak of, maybe it's actually enough just to talk about the versions that do exist of this film. In the US version, there's a narration of almost each scene in order to help provide with the story, although it does merely add confusion to the mix, rather like the aforementioned Frozen Scream. However, the Italian version only retains narration in the film's opening section in order to explain the context of the story. The other narration segments are notably absent. Though it was made in America, and the English-language version was distributed in that region, many US prints are missing the nudity section where Valeria fiddles around with the pleasure chamber. Presumably just because the rest of the film is almost PG-13 material, and they wanted as wide a distribution as possible. The version I saw, though, had this scene intact, so it is possible that the current version is uncut. A slightly shortened version of the film was also featured on Mystery Science Theatre 3000 on the first season, apparently as a reaction to fan requests that they only seemed to cover at that point films in black and white. So that was Robot Holocaust, folks, and it's now time to say farewell for now. So thanks to all for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed me covering these films as much as I had, inverted commas, watching them. 
If you've got any feedback on these films, or any we've got in future, do send us some messages on Twitter or Facebook. I'm there on Nasty Pasty Podcast, or you can find me over an email on nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we've got a subgenre of splatter movies that's quite specific, and something actually I'm quite excited to explore. It's body horror next week, and we've got David Cronenberg's Videodrome and the wonderfully colourful Street Trash. I'm looking forward to these. I've heard so much about them, but I've never actually got round at the moment to seeing them. So until next week, ladies and gents, take care of yourself, and I'll see you next time on Nasty Pasty. Hasta la vista! (laughs) 